Section 20 of Atlantic Narratives, Modern Short Stories, Second Series, published 1918 by the Atlantic Monthly Press. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What Happened to Alana by Kathleen Norris Recorded by Helen J. Jacobs in March 2014, Leicestershire, England. A capped and aproned maid with a martyred expression had twice sounded the dinner bell in the stately halls of Castello before any member of the family saw fit to respond to it. Then they all came at once, with a sudden pounding of young feet on the stairs, an uproar of young voices, and much banging of doors. Jim and Danny, twins of fourteen, to whom their mother was wantly proud to allude as top of the line, violently left their own sanctum on the fourth floor, and coasted down such banisters as lay between that and the dining room. Teresa, an angel-faced twelve-year-old in a blue frock, shut the wide, wide world, with a sigh, and climbed down from the window seat in the hall. Teresa's pious mother, in moments of exultation, loved to compare and commend her offspring to such of the saints and martyrs as their youthful virtues suggested, and Teresa, at twelve, had, as it were, graduated from the little saints, Agnes and Rose and Cecilia, and was now compared, in her mother's secret heart, to the gracious queen of all the saints, as she was when she was a little girl, Mrs. Costello would add to herself, to excuse any undue boldness in the thought. And indeed, Teresa, as she was tonight, her blue eyes still clouded with Ellen Montgomery's sorrows, her curls tumbled about her hot cheeks, would have made a pretty foil in a picture of old St. Anne. But this is a story about Alanna of the Black Eyes, the eight years, the large irregular mouth, the large irregular features. Alanna was outrunning lazy little Leo, her senior, but not her match at anything, on their way to the dining room. She was rendering desperate the two smaller boys, Frank X. Jr., and John Henry Newman Costello, who staggered hopelessly in her wake. They were all hungry, clean, and good-natured, and Alana's voice led the other voices, even as her feet in twinkling patent leather led their feet. Following the children came their mother, fastening the rich silken lace at her wrists as she came. Her handsome, kindly face, and her big shapely hands were still moist and glowing from soap and warm water, and the shining rings of black hair at her temples were moist too. This is all my doing, Dad, she said comfortably as she and her flock entered the dining room. Put the soup on, Alma. I'm the one that was going to be prompt at dinner too, she added, with a superintending glance for all the children as she tied on little John's napkin. F.X. Costello Sr., undertaker by profession, and mayor by an immense majority, 
was already at the head of the table. Late, eh, mummy? said he good-naturedly. He threw his newspaper on the floor, cast a householder's critical glance at the lights and the fire, and pushed his neatly placed knives and forks to right and left carelessly with both his fat hands. The room was brilliantly lighted and warm. A great fire roared in the old-fashioned black marble grate, and electric lights blazed everywhere. Everything in the room and in the house was costly, comfortable, incongruous, and hideous. The Costellos were very rich and had been very poor, and certain people were fond of telling of the queer, ridiculous things they did in trying to spend their money. But they were very happy and thought their immense, ugly house was the finest in the city or in the world. "'Well, Anne, what's the news on the Rialta?' said the head of the house, busy with his soup. "'You'll have the laugh on me, Dad,' his wife assured him placidly. "'After all my saying that nothing would take me to Father Crowley's meeting.' "'Oh, that was it,' said the Mayor. "'What's he going to have? A concert?' "'And a fair, too,' supplemented Mrs. Costello.' There was an interval devoted on her part to various bibs and trays, and a lower side to the waitress. Then she went on. As you know, I went, meaning to beg off, on account of the baby being so little, and Leo's cough, and the papers being upstairs, and all. I thought I'd just make a donation, and let it go at that. But the ladies kind of hung back. There was very few there, and I got talking. Well, tis but our duty, after all, said the mayor, nodding approval. That's all, Frank. Well, so finally Mrs. Kiljohn took the coffee, and the lemon girls took the grab bag. The guild will, of course, look out for the concert, and I took one fancy work booth, and, of course, the children of Mary will have the other, just like they always do. Oh, was Grace there? Teresa was eager to know. Grace was, darling. And we're to have the fancy work. You'll help us, won't you, Mother? Goody, I'm in that, exulted Teresa. I'm in that too, echoed Alanna quickly. A lot you are, you baby, said Leo unkindly. You're not a child of Mary, Alanna, Teresa said promptly and uneasily. Well, well, I can help, protested Alana, putting up her lip. Can't I, mother? Can't I, mother? You can help me, Dovey, said her mother absently. I'm not going to work as I did for St. Patrick's Bazaar, Dad. And I said so. Mrs. O'Connell and Mrs. King said they'll do all the work if I'd just be the nominal head. Mary Murray will do us some pillars, leather with Gibsons and Indians on them, and I'll have Lizzie Bain up here for a month, making me aprons and little jappy wrappers, and so on. She paused over the cutlets and chicken pie which she had been helping with an amazing attention to personal preference. The young Costellos chafed at the delay, but their mother's fine eyes saw them not. 
Kelly and Moffat ought to let me have materials at half price, she reflected out loud. My bill's six or seven hundred a month. You always say you're not going to do a thing, and then get in and make more than any other booth, said Dan proudly. Oh, not this year I won't, his mother assured him, but in her heart she knew she would. Aren't you glad it's fancy work, said Teresa. It doesn't get all sloppy and mussy like ice cream, does it, mother? Gee, don't you love fairs, burst out Leo rapturously. Sliding up and down the floor before the dance begins, Dan, to work in the wax, suggested Jimmy in pleasant anticipation. We go every day and every night, don't we, mother? Ask your father, said Mrs. Costello discreetly. But the mayor's attention just then was taken by Alanna, who had left her chair to go and whisper in his ear. Why, here's Alanna's heart broken, he said cheerfully, encircling her little figure with a big arm. Alanna shrank back suddenly against him and put her wet cheek on his shoulder. Now whatever is it, darling, wondered her mother, sympathetically but without concern. You've not got a pain, have you, dear? She wants to help the children of Mary, said her father tenderly. She wants to do as much as Tessie does. Oh, but Dad, she can't, fretted Teresa. She's not a child of Mary. She oughtn't to want to tag that way. Now all the other girls' sisters will tag. They haven't got sisters, said Alana, red-cheeked of a sudden. Why, Mary Alana Costello, they have too. Jean has, and Stella has. And Grace has her little cousins, protested Teresa triumphantly. Never mind, baby, said Mrs. Costello hurriedly. Mother'll find you something to do. There now, how would you like to have a raffle book on something? A chair or a pillar? And you could get all the names yourself and keep the money in a little bag. Oh, my, I wish I could, said Jim artfully. Think of the last night when the drawing comes. You'll have the fun of looking up the winning number in your book and calling it out in the hall. Would I, Dad? said Alana softly, but with dawning interest. And then, from the pulpit, when the returns are all in, contributed Dan warmly, Father Crowley will read out your name. With Mrs. Frank Costello's booth... Raffle of Sofa Cushion by Miss Alana Costello, $26.35. Oh, would he, Dad? said Alana, won to smiles and dimples by this charming prospect. Of course he would, said her father. Now go back to your seat, Macri, and eat your dinner. When Mama takes you and Tess to the matinee tomorrow, ask her to bring you in to me first. And you and I'll step over to Paul's and pick out a table or a couch or something. Eh, Mummy? And what do you say? said that lady to Alana, as the radiant little girl went back to her chair. Whereupon Alana breathed a bashful thank you, Dad, into the ruffled yoke of her frock 
and the matter was settled. The next day she trotted beside her father to Paul's big furniture store, and after long hesitation selected a little desk of shining brass and dull oak. Now, said her father, when they were back in his office, and Teresa and Mrs. Costello were eager for the matinee, here's your book of numbers, Alana, and here I'll tie a pencil and string to it. Don't lose it. I've given you two hundred numbers at two bits each, and mind, the minute anyone pays for one, you put their name down on the same line. Ooh, ooh, said Alana in pride. Two hundred. That's lots of money, isn't it, Dad? That's eleven or fourteen dollars, isn't it, Dad? That's fifty dollars, Goose, said her father making a dot with the pencil on the tip of her turned little nose. Ooh, said Teresa, awed. Hatted and furred and muffed, she leaned on her father's shoulder. Ooh, Dad, whispered Alana, with scarlet cheeks. So, now, said her mother, with a little nod of encouragement and warning. Put it right in your muff, lovey. Don't lose it. Dan or Jim will help you count your money and keep things straight. And to begin with, we'll all take a chance, said the mayor, bringing his fat palm full of silver up from his pocket. How old are you, Bummy? I'm thirty-seven, all but, as you well know, Frank, said his wife promptly. Thirty-six and thirty-seven for you, then. He wrote her name opposite both numbers. And here's the mayor on the same page, 44, and 12 for Tessie, and 8 for this little high binder on my knee here. And now we'll have 1 for little Gertie. Gertrude Costello was not yet 3 months old, her mother said. Well, she can have number 1 anyway, said the mayor. You make a reduced rate for one family, I understand, Miss Costello. I... Don't, chuckled Alana, locking her thin little arms about his neck and digging her chin into his eye. So he gave her full price, and off she went with her mother in a state of great content, between rows and rows of coffins, and cases of plumes, and handles and rosettes, and designs for monuments. Mrs. Church will want some chances, won't she, mother? she said suddenly. Let Mrs. Church alone, darling, advised Mrs. Costello. She's not a Catholic, and there's plenty to take chances without her. Alana reluctantly assented, but she need not have worried. Mrs. Church voluntarily took many chances and became very enthusiastic about the desk. She was a pretty, clever young woman, of whom all the Costellos were very fond. She lived with a very young husband and a very new baby in a tiny cottage near the big Irish family and pleased Mrs. Costello by asking her advice on all domestic matters and taking it. She made the Costello children welcome at all hours in her tiny, shining kitchen or sunny little dining room. She made them candy and told them stories. She was a minister's daughter and wise in many delightful, girlish, 
friendly ways. And in return, Mrs. Costello did her many a kindly act, and sent her almost daily presents in the most natural manner imaginable. But Mrs. Church made Alanna very unhappy about the raffled desk. It so chanced that it matched exactly the other furniture in Mrs. Church's rather bare little drawing room, and this made her eager to win it. Alana, at eight, long familiar with raffles and their ways, realised what a very small chance Mrs. Church stood of getting the desk. It distressed her very much to notice that lady's growing certainty of success. She took chance after chance, and with every chance she warned Alana of the dreadful results of her not winning, and Alana, with a worried line between her eyes, protested her helplessness afresh. "'She will do it, Dad,' said the little girl, confiding to him one evening, when she and her book and pencil were on his knee, "'and it worries me so.' Oh, I hope she wins it, said Teresa ardently. She's not a Catholic, but we're praying for her. And you know how people who aren't Catholics, Dad, are apt to think that our fairs are pretty, pretty money-making, you know. And if only she could point to that desk, said Alana, and say that she won it at a Catholic fair. But she won't, said Teresa, suddenly cold. I'm... Praying she will, said Alana suddenly. Oh, I don't think you ought. Do you, Dad? said Teresa gravely. Do you think she ought, Mummy? That's just like her pouring her holy water over the kitten. You oughtn't to do those things. I ought to, said Alana, in a whisper that reached only her father's ear. You suit me whatever you do, said Mayor Costello and Mrs. Church can take her chances with the rest of us. Mrs. Church seemed to be quite willing to do so. When at last the great day of the fair came, she was one of the first to reach the hall in the morning to ask Mrs. Costello how she might be of use. Now wait a minute, then, said Mrs. Costello cordially. She straightened up as she spoke from an inspection of a box of fancy work. We could only get into the hall this hour gone, my dear, and twas a sight after the native son's banquet last night. It'll be a miracle if we can get things in order for tonight. Father Crowley said he'd have three carpenters here this morning at nine, without fail, but not one's come yet. That's the way. Oh, we'll fix things, said Mrs. Church, shaking out a dainty little apron. Ilana came briskly up and beamed at her. The little girl was driving about on all sorts of errands for her mother and had come in to report. Mother, mother, I went home, she said in a breathless rush and told Alma four extras were coming to lunch and here are your big scissors and I told the boys you wanted them to go out to Uncle Dan's for greens. They took the bookboard, and I went to Keezer's for cheesecloth, and he had only eighteen yards of pink, but he thinks Kelly's have more, and there are the tacks, and they don't keep spool wire, and the electrician will be here in ten minutes.
Ilana, you are the pride of me life, said her mother, kissing her. Now, that's all now, dearie. Sit down and rest. Oh, but I'd rather go round and see things, said Ilana, and off she went. The immense hall was filled with the noise of voices, hammers and laughter. Groups of distracted women were forming and dissolving everywhere around chaotic masses of boards and bunting. Whenever a carpenter started for the door or entered it, he was waylaid, bribed and bullied by frantic superintendents of the various booths. Messengers came and went, staggering under masses of evergreen, carrying screens, rope, suitcases, baskets, boxes, Japanese lanterns, freezers, rugs, ladders and tables. Ilana found the stage fascinating. Lunch and dinner were to be served there for the five days of the fair, and it had been set with many chairs and tables, fenced with ferns and bamboo. Ilana was charmed to arrange knives and forks, to unpack oily hams and sticky cakes, and great bowls of salad, and to store them neatly away in the green room. The grand piano had been moved down to the floor. Now and then an audacious boy or two banged on it for the few moments that it took his mother's voice or hands to reach him. Little girls gently played the Carnival of Venice or Echoes of the Ball, with their scared eyes alert for reproof. And once two of the big sedality girls came up, assured and laughing and dusty, and boldly performed one of their convent duets. Some of the tired women in the booths straightened up and clapped and called encore. Teresa was not one of these girls. Her instrument was the violin. Moreover, she was busy and absorbed at the children of Mary's booth, which by four o'clock began to blossom all over its white-draped pillars and tables with ribbons and embroidery and tissue paper, and cushions and aprons and collars, and all sorts of perfumed prettiness. The two priests were constantly in evidence, the cassocks and hands showing unaccustomed dust. And over all the confusion, Mrs. Costello shone supreme. Her brisk big figure with skirts turned back and a blue apron still further protecting them was everywhere at once. Laughter and encouragement marked her path. She wore a paper of pins on the breast of her silk dress. She had a tack hammer thrust in her belt. In her apron pockets were string and wire and tacks. A big pair of scissors hung at her side and a pencil was thrust through her smooth black hair. She advised and consulted and directed, even with the priests, it was to be observed that her mild, well, father, it seems to me, always won the day. She led the electricians a life of it. She became the terror of the carpenters' lives. Where was the young lady that played the violin going to stay? Send her up to Mrs. Costello's. Heavens, we're short of a tablecloth. Oh, but Mrs. Costello has just sent Dan home for one. 
How on earth could the male quartet from Tower Town find its way to the hall? Mrs. Costello has promised to tell Mr. C. to send a carriage for them. She came up to the children of Mary's booth about five o'clock. Well, if you girls ain't the wonders, she said to the tired little sodalist in a tone of unbounded admiration and surprise. You make me ashamed of me own booth. This is beautiful. Oh, do you think so, mother, said Teresa wistfully, clinging to her mother's arm. I think it's grand, said Mrs. Costello, with conviction. There was a delighted laugh. I'm going to bring all the ladies up to see it. Oh, I'm so glad, said all the girls together, reviving visibly. And the prettiest things you've got, went on the cheering matron. You'll clear eight hundred if you clear a cent. And now put me down for a chance or two. Don't be scared. Mary Riordan four or five i'm going to bring mr costello over here tonight and don't you let him off too easy everyone laughed joyously did you hear of alana's luck said mrs costello when the bishop got here he took her all around the hall with him and between this one and that every last one of her chances is gone she couldn't keep her feet on the floor for joy the lucky girl they're waiting for you, Tess, darling, with the buckboard. Go home and lay down for a while before dinner. Aren't you lucky, said Teresa, as she climbed a few minutes later into the back seat with Jim, and Dan pulled out the whip. Alana, swinging her legs, gave a joyful assent. She was too happy to talk, but the other three had much to say. Mother thinks we'll make eight hundred dollars, said Teresa. Gee, said the twins together, and Dan added, If only Mrs. Church wins that desk now. Who's going to do the drawing of the numbers? Jimmy wondered. Bishop, said Dan, and he'll call down from the platform. Number 26 wins the desk, and then Alana will look in her book and pipe up and say, Daniel Ignatius Costello, the handsomest fellow in the parish wins the desk. Twenty-six is Harry Plummer, said Alana seriously, looking up from her chance book, at which they all laughed. But take care of that book, warned Teresa, as she climbed down. Oh, I will, responded Alana fervently. And through the next four happy days she did, and she took the precaution of tying it by a stout cord to her arm. Then on Saturday, the last afternoon, quite late, when her mother had suggested that she go home with Leo and Jack and Frank and Gertrude and the nurses, Alana felt the cord hanging loose against her hand, and looking down, she saw the book was gone. She was holding out her arms for her coat when this took place, and she went cold all over, but she did not move and Minnie buttoned her in snugly, and tied the ribbons of her hat with cold, hard knuckles without suspecting anything. Then Alana disappeared, and Mrs. Costello sent the maids and the babies on without her. It was getting dark and cold for the small Costellos, but the hour was darker and colder for Alana. She searched and she hoped and she prayed in vain. She stood up 
after a long hands-and-knees expedition under the tables where she had been earlier, and pressed her right hand over her eyes, and said aloud in her misery, Oh, I can't have lost it. I can't have. Oh, don't let me have lost it. She went here and there as if propelled by some mechanical force, a wretched, restless little figure, and when the dreadful moment came when she must give up searching, she crept in beside her mother in the carriage, and longed only for some honourable death. When they all went back at eight o'clock, she recommenced her search feverishly, with that cool alternation of hope and despair and weariness that everyone knows. The crowds, the lights, the music, the laughter and the noise, and the all-pervading odour of popcorn, were not real, when a shabby brown little book was her whole world, and she could not find it. The drawing will begin, said Alana, and the bishop will call out the number. And what'll I say? Everyone will look at me. And how can I say I've lost it? Oh, what a baby they'll call me. Father'll pay the money back, she said, in sudden relief. But the impossibility of that swiftly occurred to her, and she began hunting again with fresh terror. But he can't. How can he? A hundred names, and I don't know them, or half of them. Then she felt the tears coming, and she crept under some benches and cried. She lay there for a long time, listening to the curious hum and buzz above her, and at last it occurred to her to go to the bishop and tell this old, kind friend the truth. But she was too late. As she got to her feet, she heard her own name called from the platform in the bishop's voice. "'Where's Solana Costello? Ask her who has number 83 on the desk.' Eighty-three wins the desk. Find little Alana Costello. Alana had no time for thought. Only one course of action occurred to her. She cleared her throat. Mrs. Will Church has that number, Bishop, she said. The crowd about her gave way, and the Bishop saw her, rosy, embarrassed and breathless. Ah, there you are, said the Bishop. Who has it? "'Mrs. Church, Your Grace,' said Alana, calmly this time. "'Well, did you ever?' said Mrs. Costello to the bishop. "'She had gone up to claim a mirror she had won, "'a mirror with a gold frame and lilacs and roses "'painted lavishly on its surface. "'Gee, I bet Alana was pleased about the desk,' said Dan in the carriage.' Mrs. Church nearly cried, Teresa said. But where did Alana go to? I couldn't find her until just a few minutes ago, and then she was so queer. It's my opinion she was dead tired, said her mother. Look how sound she's asleep. Carry her up, Frank. I'll keep her in bed in the morning. They kept Alanna in bed for many mornings, for her secret weighed on her soul, and she failed suddenly in colour, strength and appetite. She grew weak and nervous, and one afternoon, when the bishop came to see her, 
worked herself into such a frenzy that Mrs. Costello wonderingly consented to her entreaty that he should not come up. She would not see Mrs. Church, or go to see the desk in its new house, or speak of the fair in any way. But she did ask her mother who had swept out the hall after the fair. I did a good deal myself, said Mrs. Costello, dashing one hope to the ground. Elana leaned back in her chair, sick with disappointment. One afternoon, about a week after the fair, she was brooding over the fire. The other children were at the matinee. Mrs. Costello was out, and a violent storm was whirling about the nursery windows. Presently, Annie, the laundress, put her frowsy head in at the door. She was a queer, warm-hearted Irish girl. Her big arms were still steaming from the tub, and her apron was wet. Ah, alone, said Annie with a broad smile. Yes, come in, won't you, Annie? said little Alana. I can't. I'm at the tubes, said Annie, coming in nevertheless. Doing all the tablecloths and napkins, and out drops your little book. My, what did you say? said Alana, very white. Your little book, said Annie. She laid the chance book on the table and proceeded to mend the fire. Alana sank back in her chair. She twisted her fingers together and tried to think of an appropriate prayer. Thank you, Annie, she said weakly, when the laundress went out. Then she sprang for the book. It slipped twice from her cold little fingers before she could open it. Eighty-three, she said hoarsely. Sixty, seventy, eighty-three. She looked and looked and looked. She shut the book and opened it again and looked. She laid it on the table and walked away from it, and then came back suddenly, and looked. She laughed over it, and cried over it, and thought how natural it was, and how wonderful it was, all in the space of ten blissful minutes. And then, with returning appetite and colour and peace of mind, her eyes filled with pity for the wretched little girl who had watched this same sparkling, delightful fire so drearily a few minutes ago her small soul was steeped in gratitude she crooked her arm and put her face down on it and sank to her knees end of story bibliographic and interpretive notes by charles swain thomas kathleen norris a californian by birth has been a voluminous writer of magazine fiction since 1910, when she contributed two stories to The Atlantic, What Happened to Alana and The Tide Marsh. To those who know Kathleen Norris's mother, nothing more need be said of this author's ability to depict the wholesome sentiment of family life without the sentimentality that clings to many of the ordinary short stories and novels. The less fortunate may make valuable acquaintance in the halls of Costello, FX Senior.
undertaker by profession and mayor by an immense majority shares his position of importance by reason of the charms of his numerous offspring mrs costello is of course the centre of interest as she is of the costello circle which means all who come within range of her generous hand and kindly word yet no one remains unindividualized a few vivid strokes and the picture is complete if an artistic hand adds another touch now and then we are never made conscious of technique especially is this true in the case of young mrs church and what more delightful could there be than the family conversations which are quite as revealing in points of character as they are delightful in their flashes of humour suggested points for study and comment one what purpose does the detailed description of family life serve comment on the choice of detail two besides the plot what are the most interesting elements in the story three could you suggest another climax four what is gained by having alana solve her problem alone how does the author arrange that the solution shall be thus accomplished five is mrs church introduced for any reason other than her slight connection with the plot six is mr costello as well portrayed as his wife can you suggest any reasons why he typifies the irish american rather than the native irishman of the same rank seven how does miss norris achieve the atmosphere that she does eight could the story be criticized as being sentimental end of what happened to alana